We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, on Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into an ancient idea. Freedom rests in the power to choose how we respond to life rather than trying to control it. The concept goes back to the Greeks and Romans and an idea that flourished until the 4th century AD, which goes under the name of Stoicism. However, we're going to enter through a more contemporary philosopher. My witness today is Mark Matusek, an award-winning writer and teacher whose work focuses on personal awakening. He's the author of Lessons from an American Stoic, How Emerson Can Change Your Life. So let's start off from the very beginning and talking about what is Stoicism. Well, Stoicism is an ancient philosophy that was started two centuries, I believe, before the birth of Christ. And it focuses on the power of the mind to alleviate destructive and negative feelings through what we would call today cognitive behavioral therapy. It's shifting perspective and understanding that we have the power to alleviate our own suffering depending on how we hold things, the view that we take of things. That was one of the pillars of Stoicism. And another is that nature is the source of our greatest wisdom and our greatest vitality. And that by connecting to nature and moving out of the way of this turbulent, confusing brain of ours, uh, we (laughs) connect to something that's larger than we are. And that's why uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson was such a a fan of Stoicism, and his transcendentalist philosophy is so close in certain ways to Stoic thought. So the next really basic question is, who was Ralph Waldo Emerson then? Ralph Waldo Emerson was the godfather of American spirituality. He he lived in the early 19th century. He was a seventh-generation minister who left the church after losing his traditional faith and established a movement called Transcendentalism, which was basically a rebellion against the staid traditional church of the time, which emphasized dogma over direct experience. Like today, people in Emerson's era were hungry for a, a, an immediate connection with the divine or the cosmic intelligence, whatever you want to call that, and were really disillusioned with the church. And so Emerson was a a spiritual revolutionary who left the church and became a speaker on the Lyceum circuit and for 50 years was really the conscience of the United States. He lived during one of the most violent periods of our history from pre-abolution through the Civil War. And he was an extraordinary figure because he had struggled with so much insecurity and trouble in his own early life. That's what makes him so poignant to me and so attractive as a figure is that he doesn't speak from on high. He learned the hard way through a lot of painful, tragic life 
circumstances to rise above uh, using Stoic thought and using this, what we were just talking about, shifting perspective, to uh, gain a, a more insightful and balanced and wise approach to his own life, which he then translated into his teachings. And has he always been popular in America or has he sort of gone in and out of fashion? You know, he's always been in Henry David Thoreau's shadow. Thoreau was 14 years his junior. He was Emerson's protege. And Thoreau is sort of younger and hipper and sexier. He died young. <laughs> so he was, I think of it as kind of one of the rock star who died young. And Emerson, on the other hand, was a very, he was a Boston Brahmin. He was fairly straight laced. He was quite self-conscious and inhibited by comparison to Thoreau. And he lived into an old age. And so we've always kind of taken him for granted, which is why I wanted to write this book, was to remind people that, first of all, Thoreau got most of his ideas from Emerson, but also that Emerson was extremely radical in his time. He didn't look like a radical, but he was a radical. And that's why I thought that he would be a great person for people to be reminded of and to use as a beacon in this time when we're so lost, people are so feeling so demoralized and challenged as if we've lost our spiritual moorings. And Emerson was uh, the great pillar of American spirituality at a time when we needed it most. And I think that uh, we, we've come to a time like that again. Now, you found Emerson at a time when you were lost as well. So tell me how you fell in love with him. I grew up in a, an agnostic slash atheist Jewish household. There was no faith. There was no spirituality. You know, I, I used to say that we, you know, we worshipped at the mall. You know, our religion, <laughs> our religion was materialism, good suburban, you know, capitalist family. And I was hungry from a very young age for something that was bigger, something that had a deeper uh, connection to what life and, and its meaning might actually be. And I was very depressed. I was in graduate school. I was getting a PhD. And I felt like I had lost my way in a very you know, profound sense. And through happenstance, I fell into a job working as a research assistant for a very famous Emerson scholar. And I spent a year immersed in his teachings. And it completely changed my understanding of the world. It was the antithesis of everything I had been brought up to believe about what human life is about, what's possible for us the nature of what it means to be a person. You know, Emerson was deeply optimistic. In fact, I, I think of him as a good Buddhist. You know, he truly believed that human nature was good. And that's, that was a message I had never heard before. And nor had I ever come across transcendentalism or, or a, a, a spiritual view of a way of looking at life. And it was, it was transformative for me. And you describe yourself as a fatherless boy. How did that sort of tie in with your your need for Emerson? Because I think as a fatherless boy, you don't really have much faith in humanity, I would say. As a fatherless boy raised by a very cynical and depressed mother, I grew up, I had a very rough childhood. There was suicide, addiction, trauma, a lot of, a lot of problems in my childhood home. And so I was a born seeker. I was, some, I was the kid at eight, nine years old, who was scribbling in a notebook, trying to figure things out. That's who I was. So I definitely needed some kind of uh, guidance. And the fact that Emerson himself had lost his father, that he was such an insecure, awkward uh, little boy as I was, 
really endeared me to him. And so he, the, his teachings appeared at a moment when I needed them most. And they've been a guide for me for the past 40 years. So one of his key ideas is that human life has a purpose. We have a mandate to unfold our characteristics. So explain that to me. Yes, he, he said that the chief end, the, the unfolding of his character is the chief end of man. And that for me was a revelation because I never thought that life had any meaning. You know, I was taught that it was a dog eat dog world, you know, that you, you know, kill them before they kill you. There was no deeper purpose. And so when Emerson said that we have a nature, a character, and that it's our job to shepherd that character and that, temp- that, that nature into our lives, it was a big wake up call for me. And I saw that also life's difficulties were grist for the mill, that there was potential in suffering and in loss and in grief. Things that I thought were you know, unremitting tragedies actually had another side to them. And that was to deepen and to become aware of our attachments to what Emerson called the exterior life. And when we become attached to people, places, things outside of ourselves for our happiness, we're bound to suffer. And there is no uh, way but down if we are focusing outwardly. But when we look inward and we touch into what he called the whisper only you can hear, life becomes very different. And you realize that you have a guidance in you that you may not have been aware of because, of course, the mind, the cogitating mind is so loud. So he said, we need to quiet down, we need to tune in, and we need to learn to follow that muse or genius, as he called it. I mean, we're heading into a sort of, quite a sort of sacred sort of kind of sphere here. You must have felt a little bit uncomfortable here because we're sort of going around the centre of, you know, religion and God and things like that. I mean, he actually uses the words like God as well, doesn't he? He does. And that was a big problem for me because, as I said, I was brought up as a very cynical atheist. And it took me a long time, Andrew, to realize that for me, it was a semantic obstacle. When Emerson talked about the spirit within, when he talked about the God within, I had a sense of what he meant, even though the terminology was arcane, I felt it. And so he helped me get over my my resistance to the word God and my resistance to the idea that there is something bigger than us, that we're part of one mind, that we're part of something that is animating our lives, that transcends the limited cogitating, what we think of as the left brain mind that's trying to figure things out all the time. And so for me, it was a, it was a big step forward to drop my resistance to religious terminology and understand that he was speaking for for a particular era, first of all, but that the essence of what he was saying was familiar to me. I knew that what he was saying was true. I could feel it in my body. So I had to learn to separate the content from the form, you know, separate the, the meaning from the the words. So it's a sort of a sense of one mind, a sort of divine intelligence. Am I hearing that correctly? Yes. But you can drop the word divine if it's, if it's a problem for you. You can call it universal intelligence, primal intelligence. And Emerson's was, belief was that we all partake of this one mind and that the thoughts that come into our individual minds aren't coming from us. They're coming from a deeper 
wider, more transcendental source. And of course, anyone who's ever tried to stop their thoughts knows that this is true. We're not creating our thoughts and we can't make them go away. You know, what we can do is attend to them and recognize their ephemerality and allow that we are not in control. You know, Emerson's saying that until you realize that you're not in control, you can never achieve what he calls self-reliance. And this is something that people don't understand about his philosophy. They hear self-reliance and they think John Wayne, macho, isolationism, I can do it myself. That's not at all what self-reliance meant to Emerson. Self-reliance was about self-trust, not self-sufficiency. He said, self-reliance is reliance on God. He said, there's nothing so weak as an egotist. So he wasn't promoting this kind, you know, this kind of macho Ayn Randian view of the world. In fact, he was saying that until we step aside and realize that there is this larger intelligence streaming through us, we can never touch into that genius, that thing that we're born with that's completely unique and wants to come to fruition. Because I've been meditating on a line of his from your book, which is, you look within not to find yourself, but to find God. Yes. And as I, as I say in the, in the introduction where that comes from, that for me, that language was, was not something I resonated with at all. And yet, when I read that line, I knew what he meant. I knew what he meant because there, I knew there was something in me that I didn't understand, a mystery, if you will. And if he wanted to call it God, that was okay with me. What mattered is that it opened me. It opened my mind. And it relaxed the defensive, egotistical, kind of paranoid little false self that was protecting what it thought it knew. Emerson showed me how little I knew. And that was a godsend. So he changed your life, didn't he? Because you changed your life completely. So tell us about that. Well, I quit graduate school, first of all, which was the best thing I could have done. I hated graduate school. And so I left a PhD program. I moved to New York. I became a professional writer. I made it right with people in my life who I knew relationships that needed healing. I, I, I started to take responsibility for my own actions, which is another huge theme of Emerson's stop blaming the world for your life. You know, he said, people don't realize that their opinion of the world is also a confession of their character. And I started to realize, oh, I'm looking through this, this very distorted lens at the world, thinking that it's the world and it's me. You know, it's the, the distortions were within me. So what this work does, it turns you inward. And you realize the answers are here if you quiet down, if you trust yourself, uh, and you don't follow the crowd. That's another huge theme of Emerson's is nonconformity. I was just going to say, the more I hear you talk, he's sounding more and more like a psychoanalyst. That's probably why I love his work. I think I'm a, a closet psychoanalyst myself. I'm fascinated by the way the mind works, and I'm fascinated by the question of how to live. And that was all Emerson cared about. Of course, that's what all philosophy is, 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 is looking at. How do you live? You know, what does it mean to, to have a good life? And what does it mean to have character? Yeah, because your your sister actually, at a, a moment of complete and utter crisis, actually asked you that question: "How do you live? What was that like for you, Andrew?" It was one of the. It was a life changing moment. 
for me without you know, no hyperbole. My sister uh, had been very depressed. She had been hospitalized and she came, showed up at my house one day when I was 20 and looking terrible, very just terrible. I said, Martha, Marsha, what is it? Uh, what's going on? She said, how do you do it? I said, how do what? She said, how do you live? And two weeks later, she killed herself. And so for me, that became a mantra. It became an ongoing question. And it guided, it has guided all of my work. Uh, it's all focused in some way or another on the question of how do you live? How do we move through this dangerous, painful, you know, and wonderful existence of ours with a modicum of goodwill and well-being? And the terribly difficult thing about that question is it's probably different at 20 as it is at 60. No question. And I didn't know what to tell her. I answered with platitudes. You know, you put one foot in front of the other, you do the best you can. I honestly was completely out of my depth at the time. But it became, for me, an object of real contemplation. And of course, that's what we're all asking ourselves all the time, even when we're not aware of it. How do I do this? On any given day, the challenges to being truthful, to having integrity, to being able to love are close to overwhelming, not to mention what's going on in the world. <laughs> so to how do you, how do you uh, manage all of that in a way that is sane and that is tolerable? That, of course, is what we're all trying to figure out all the time. And that's what Emerson was so brilliant at because he suffered himself. He was open about his own struggle. And that's how that was the for me the doorway into Emerson was him as a man. I'm interested I was interested as much in this human being. How did that insecure, chubby, awkward, self-hating little boy become Ralph Waldo Emerson, become this paragon of wisdom? And and how had that happened? For me, that's an arc that I would like to model my own life after. You know, how do we grow into what is possible for us? I mean, let's sort of try and start to think if we can answer that question. And I think what he's saying a little bit is we have to go beyond the me story into something deeper. So can you explain what he means by the me story? Sure. The me story is the false self. It's the ego-bound personality that is identifies itself through its externals and its exterior attachments and aspirations. It's the relative uh, self. So it's the part of us that's always changing. It's not to discount it. Obviously, we are human beings, but there is something in us that is not changing. There's something in us that is eternal, that is transcendental. And that until we have, until we balance our lives with an awareness of that, and have that keep that perspective in the background, it's impossible, says Emerson, to live a balanced life of integrity in the world because you're always focused on protecting this little paranoid, selfish, greedy, lusty little self that want, that's focused on its own interests. So if we're saying there's a big self as well as a little self, what is this big self made of as far as Emerson's concerned? I'm I'm sort of thinking I'm hearing this sort of one mind is part of it. Is there other parts of it as well? No, that's exactly what it is. He would he calls it consciousness. Mm -hmm. He called he called it consciousness. At one point when he was 
haggling with with some churchgoers about it. They he said, "Well, you call it Christ, I call it consciousness." When he talks about consciousness, he's talking about this one mind. He's talking about our transcendental awareness, the thing in us that preceded us, that will be here when we are gone, that streams through us and informs our lives, our our emotional lives, our physical lives, as well as our spiritual lives. So not only did Emerson rescue you at sort of 22, he also came to the rescue when you were 28 as well. So what happened when you were 28? When I was 28, I was living in New York, living the life that I thought I wanted. I had gone there to become a writer. I got into the magazine business. I was working for Andy Warhol at Interview Magazine. I had this interesting job and Outwardly, everything was terrific, and inwardly, I felt like I was dying. And then the AIDS crisis hit in the early 80s, and people I knew started to get sick and die, and I, of course, was terrified for myself. And so I left my job, I left New York, and I became a Dharma bum for the next 10 years. I was just bummed around, basically waiting to see if it was going to get me or not. And it was a terrifying time, a painful, difficult time. And it was also the most transformative period of my life. As anyone will tell you who's, who's facing their own mortality, life looks very different when you're at the edge and when you're waiting for that, the, you're waiting for the ax to fall. And so Emerson became my dear companion in that time. Wherever I went, there was, oh, I always had, my copy of Emerson with me. And I would find that no matter how bad things were, spending an hour with Emerson would talk me off the cliff. It would pull me back off the ledge. It would remind me of the the thing that I had been reminded of earlier in graduate school. There's something bigger than this terrified little mind of mine, that I'm part of something larger. And that in a moment of crisis uh, is life-saving. It's soul-saving. And there's the relationship with nature as well that's very core that we haven't spoken about. In India, I suppose I'm imagining there's going to be rather a lot of nature there. Yes, there was a lot of nature. I spent a lot of time up in Ladakh, up, which is the uppermost province of India, it used to be Tibet. So I was spent time up in the Himalayas. I did a lot of traveling. Then I was all over the world for those 10 years. It wasn't just India. And I did find that there was a a silence, a quietness, having grown up in the city, growing up in Los Angeles as a suburban kid. I had never taken advantage of it. I had never really experienced that kind of solitude and silence and connection to the non-man-made world before I left New York and I went on that pilgrimage of mine. And Emerson was there kind of whispering in my ear. You know, I could hear him you know, saying, go into the woods, listen to your own thought, you know, throw away your books. <laughs> you just, you know, connect and remember. Plato called it anamnesis, you know, the remembering of our origins. And that happens, really does happen best in quietness and in connection to the natural world. So how did the natural world help you? The natural, it shows you how small you are. And that is that can be a very healing thing when your mind, when the, the grandiose self-referential mind is in overdrive, which mine was a lot of the time, moving into a landscape where you're so small and where awe is, 
when, when I, I was constantly feeling awe at things I was seeing, things I was learning, people I was meeting. That shrinks you down. It shrinks your problems down. You see yourself in a more realistic and grounded perspective. And also Americans, and I hate to make these big generalizations, but we tend to be grandiose as, 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 as a people. Our ethos is kind of triumphalist, number one, grandiose, you can do it all. And I needed to shrink that down because when you're in trouble and you can't fix it, that grandiosity is not your friend. It becomes your punisher because you feel like, why can't I make this right? Uh, but of course, the things in life we can't make right. You know, we, we, that's, that's when you learn to turn over the illusion of control is when you're up against life and death situations. Because what Emerson says is that pain, loss, and suffering are our teachers. Absolutely. He said there that pain and suffering are our guides. What Emerson said was that he has been shown but half the world who has never seen the house of pain. So that unless we have an awareness, a connection, and a familiarity with the dark side of life, with the shadow, the loss, we can't achieve self-reliance. It's like we're standing on one foot and we need to ground ourselves in reality. And that's another thing people don't understand about Emerson. They think he's some pie-in-the-sky Pollyanna optimist. Not at all. He did have an optimism, but he called it cosmic optimism. And it was based on a spiritual awareness and taking into account all of the facts on the ground. It wasn't about you know denial. It was about recognizing all of the obstacles, all of the pain, the adversity, and the difficulty, and holding them in a bigger container. So in sort of 1996, thereabouts, there became the triple therapies. And whereas you were waiting to die, suddenly you were going to live again. I mean, did Emerson help at this point too? Yes, absolutely. Because you never, you don't want to lose what you learned in that time. And that was a big worry for me. I didn't want to go back to being the person I had been before. I wanted to incorporate and integrate what I had learned when I was waiting for the axe to fall without being morbid and without sort of walking around feeling like I was, you know, in, in constant danger. And Emerson was all about regeneration, redemption, returning from the dark. You don't stay there. You just know that it is there so that it tempers your understanding of the world and it softens your heart. You know, it's so easy to, to get vain and selfish and, and invulnerable. I didn't want to lose my vulnerability just because treatments came along and I'm, and I'm 30 years later, here I am. I, I didn't want to lose what, as Dostoevsky said, I, 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 his greatest fear was not to be worthy of his sufferings. I wanted to be worthy and live a life that felt worthy of what I had been through and what I had seen. Not only in my life, but the lives of so many people around me who were getting sick and dying at very young ages. Yeah. And I wanted to live with that awareness for however long I was here. And to be a witness for what they had been through too. Absolutely. And that's, that's why I wrote my first memoir, was that I wanted to show people that even someone like me uh, could have a, an, an awakening, small a, you know, it's lowercase a, could have some kind of, a, of an awakening of a spiritual nature, even a cynical, you know, ambitious kind of alpha American guy could be humbled and have this opening and this shift of consciousness. 
And maybe actually it's much harder if you are successful to have an awakening because, and I'm going to read you a quote from Emerson, to be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment. He was always, always talking, as I said, about nonconformity and being able to be in the world, but not of it. And to trust your own guidance when messages are streaming in from all around you to be a certain way or make a certain choice or wear a certain kind of tennis shoe or vote a certain way, to be able to stand in your own solitary truth and respond from there is what self-reliance is about. I think he would have made a great psychotherapist, to be perfectly honest. (laughs) Emerson, absolutely. (laughs) And using his wisdom, you've actually put together some exercises at the back of the book, which I think is a a really brilliant idea. So perhaps you can take us through one or two of them. The first one is observe your responses. Why is that so important? Well, until he's Emerson's teaching is all about what we would call witness consciousness. It's about stepping back and observing ourselves from a from from a neutral remove, which is also, of course, a a stoic principle, uh, in order to choose how we want to respond. And until we do that, we are so identified with our responses that they become reactions, and we we're 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 reactive. So to ask to to take a pause. To, to step outside ourselves and ask ourselves what this, this situation means to us and what is a wise way of responding is a good way to, to begin to change our automatic defensive way of behaving. So we could sort of say, you know, what is the me story version? And then, you know, what would be the eagle flying up above's version? And maybe what might be a wise friend's thought, or maybe even what might Emerson say. Exactly. What would Emerson, that's actually a good way of looking at it. What would Emerson do? But he made mistakes. As I said, the great thing about it is he made mistakes, but he reflected on them afterward. So it's not about trying to be perfect. It's about allowing ourselves to learn and knowing that we can change. That was for me, one of the early ahas was, the idea that we are capable of change. I grew up, you know, I, I grew up believing that the leopard was born with its spots and that we were essentially not good and that that was just the way it is. I didn't realize that we have metacognition, which is what we're talking about, this ability to observe our own thoughts and to actually, actually shift how we live. And here's another one. I mean, it would be brilliant if we could pull this one off, but let's at least have a try. Question your need to be liked. (laughs) This is huge. (laughs) How much of your life is spent trying to please the people around you, trying to please my ideal picture of who you are? 95% of my time, I would say. Exactly. It's you and the rest of the world. So understanding what, what is, where is this need coming from? What's the wound in me? What's the the void in me that I'm trying to heal or fill by getting someone's approval? How much do I not trust myself that I have to constantly be jumping through hoops and feeling like if I'm not accepted, then I don't exist or I'm going to be thrown out of the group? That's one of our most primitive fears, of course, as, as human beings is to be thrown out of the circle of care. And there was a time and there are times when it does matter. But most of the time, it's an atavistic, 
paranoia that works to curtail our individuality and our originality and make us inauthentic in our lives. You know, we're, we're more worried about what other people will think of us than we are about what is true for us. And so what Emerson is saying is turn that around. Start with the, what is true and then see how you can manifest that in a way that does no harm in the world, but nor does it focus on pleasing or obedience. When we're in that situation, we're always children. You know, when you're looking at the world through the eyes of a child, it's all about how can I stay safe? How can I be secure? How, how can I be obedient? How can I make them like me? And that's how most many, you know, many of us live a lot of our lives. So can you give an example about how you've used this question, why do I need to be liked in your own life at a particular point? Oh, gosh. Sure. Well, when I first came back to New York, I had no interest in pop culture anymore, for example. I, I had established a career, one career. It didn't interest me. It had no meaning for me. And so I, I shifted my interest to spirituality, psychology, and many of the people I worked with didn't get it at all. I lost a lot of jobs, a lot of affiliations. People felt like I'd gone around the bend and I, I had gone into woo-woo-ville because I was talking about things like meditation and, and transcendental thought. At that time, back in the 80s, early 90s, it wasn't quite as in vogue as it is now. And I had to be true to myself. I simply couldn't live doing the kind of work that I had done before with any kind of sincerity or authenticity. So I had to follow my own, you know, my, my, my shifting passion if I was going to continue to work as a writer and do anything of value. And that meant letting go of a lot of approval and a lot of reputation and a lot of status. And I can't tell you how weird that was going from writing, for example, for mainstream publications. And suddenly, you know, I'm writing for Yoga Journal. It was, it was <laughs> It was a big change of orientation, and it was challenging. It was challenging. Because it's really difficult to let go of the past, isn't it? It is. It is. We forget that we are bigger than our circumstances. We're so identified with our situations and our lifestyle and our attachments and our affiliations, that we forget that we are none of those things. And that's the value of crisis, is it really it shakes you up. It changes your story. When your story falls apart, it's terrifying, but it's also liberating. And you see how arbitrary so many of those assumptions you made about yourself actually were and how quickly they can be taken away. And how often the stories have actually been written by other people and we've just sort of filled in the blanks. Absolutely. That's the work I do now with students. It's all about story. I started something, I, I created something called Writing to Awaken, which is a method of self-inquiry using writing. And the gist of it is that when you tell the truth, your story changes. And when your story changes, your life is transformed. But many people don't realize that they are living a story and that this story does not define them. And that, as you said, the stories are inherited. Uh, they come from our conditioning. How many people realize, you know, turn, out, turn around in their middle age and realize I'm living my parents' life. You know, I'm living this idea that they had for me that has nothing to do with who I actually am. That's a great moment. It's a, a scary moment because it means making new choices and letting go of things 
and having the courage of our own convictions, but it's ultimately very freeing. I have a feeling that stories and understanding the story is going to be very important in the letter we're going to be doing in a moment. And we'll also see if Emerson has any wisdom for somebody who's written a letter to me. And we'll be finding out that letter in just a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. If you want to participate in The Meaningful Life, you can go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast. You'll find a place there to subscribe to my my mailing list and also to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and to send in a letter. And here's the letter I've chosen for today. My husband of 18 years is developing a nasty cocaine habit. Rather than being an occasional pleasure, which I would sometimes join in on, it is a regular weekend affair, sometimes both Friday and Saturday night. The problem is not so much the amount of time that it robs from our joint life, staying up late and drinking, but the hangovers and the comedowns. He's not a nice person to be around. I've done some work with a therapist, so I don't take it personally anymore, which is a great step forward. I've tried talking about how everything affects me and not judging, and he hears me out, but nothing changes. I don't know what to do. It feels like I'm waiting for him to have a some kind of wake-up call. In the meantime, I'm not certain how to deal with the low-level sick feeling in my stomach. I love him. So, Mark, your thoughts, please. Al-Anon. <laughs> Al-Anon is the 12-step program that helps people who are around addicts or who are having their lives turned upside down by people with substance abuse of some kind. And I have to tell you that Al-Anon changed my life at, at a point when I was involved with somebody who became an addict. I had no idea what codependency was and that so many of the things that I thought were love were actually hurting this person. And so what I would say to your letter writer is that it might be time to question her desire to please him, to play according to his rules, to keep doing it his way, to stay close to him in that habit and in that unhealthy behavior. Sometimes the the more helpful, wise, loving thing to do is to leave the room. It's to say, no, uh, she can't change him, but she can absolutely change her own behavior. But it sounds like at the moment she feels victimized by his behavior. And that's, that's a big red flag for you're living someone else's life. Uh, they are dictating your reality. As long as she allows his cocaine dependence to determine the quality of her life, then she's disempowered. And she, or the person, I don't know if it's a she, but this person is disempowered and is codependent, is caught in a, a cycle of enabling, of self-diminishment and fear. The other thing about codependency is you live in fear. You live in anxiety and, and discomfort waiting for the shoe to drop. And I can hear that in this letter. There's a feeling of dread. How much worse is it going to get? How can I do this with him if he continues to behave this way? 
Those are codependency issues, and they have nothing to do with the husband. They're all about the person who wrote the letter. And so how would telling the story differently help her or him see things differently, do you think? Well, if the story is, I need to make this okay, I need to help him, I need to figure out why he's doing what he's doing so that I can have my life back, that story needs to be changed. The idea that she or this person can help or change or, you know, somehow if, if she does something differently, then it's going to make, you know, make things better is a false narrative. So the, 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 the way to shift that story is to take back her power and realize that she has on, only has control over her own responses and that it may be time for her to start telling the truth. You know, this doesn't work for me. If you are going to continue with this behavior, that's going to be a problem for us. I'm not going to participate because this doesn't make me comfortable. It doesn't feel healthy to me. So she needs, or this person, as uh, when the time is right, needs to be more truthful with herself and with the, with, with the partner. So what do you think Emerson would say, this well-known self-help uh, psychiatrist that we've turned him into? What do you think he would say if we had him on the line? You know, Emerson, was, Emerson had ascetic tendencies. He wasn't an ascetic strictly speaking, but when it came to drinking and drinking, smoking, eating, all of this sort of, you know, animal indulgences, he was very skeptical and he didn't, he didn't dress them up in pretty clothing. He said, this is an attachment to something that has nothing to do with real happiness and that your job is to recognize that, you know, it, it may be okay to have a, have some wine, to have, you know, to do a little bit of coke, but to imagine that this is giving you well-being, that you need this in some way, and to, is is a mistake. And so he 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 tended to be a bit stern in this area. Uh, he wasn't abstemious completely, but but close to it. So he wouldn't have a lot of patience with a, a lot of folks in in Al-Anon meetings and 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 AA meetings. He would, I think, be quite stern. But there is this sense of one mind, this greater intelligence there, which sort of does feel a little bit like some of the ideas of AA, giving yourself over to a greater other, so to speak. Yes, but to recognize that at the moment of an addiction, uh, you are enthralled to the false self, to the little me. You're enthralled to your animal, animalistic dependencies or, or appetites. And that to listen to that one mind to connect to the larger intelligence means transcending the attachment that you have to your habits, whatever they happen to be. So it's not getting too identified or too attached to our habits and recognizing that when we turn it over, as they would say in AA, when you turn it over to a higher power, when you turn it over to the intelligence in you that's larger than the addiction, uh, things start to shift. But that's also why the, one of the first steps in AA is, is recognizing that you are powerless over your addiction because the, the, the ego keeps you addicted by telling you, I could stop this if I wanted to. Oh, I'm really in control. Of course, one isn't in control in that situation. And so, as you said, that's about recognizing that the one mind knows more than we do uh, and that allowing it to uh, hold sway and following that wisdom is going to be the path of healing as opposed to white knuckling it and holding on and saying, I can do this. 
my, myself, Emerson would would just shake his head and laugh at that. So there's almost a, the message for my letter writer, you're not alone, that you have to tap into that greater big self inside of you in somehow. Yes, and find community, find support. There are many, many people with very, very similar issues, regardless of the substance of, of choice. Find support. There are people who have walked this path before you and successfully. And there are things that your letter writer doesn't know, probably, about how codependency works. Codependency is itself an addiction. And it's a, it's a, it's a, a habit of mind that will destroy the person who's caught up in it. The thing about addiction is it drags everyone down with it. So if, if, if this letter writer, let's say the husband's cocaine habit becomes worse and he becomes belligerent or aggressive or even violent, that becomes a, a real danger for this letter writer. So it's about saving your own life and realizing that it, it, you don't have to be enthralled to somebody else's habit. Uh, it sounds so obvious, but in the moment, it's very, very hard to do because, of course, we love people. Uh, we see them hurting. We can see them hurting themselves, endangering themselves. And all we want to do is help them. Everything empathic and altruistic in us wants to stay there and help them. And it's exactly the wrong thing to do, not only for their recovery, but for our own well-being. So we've almost run out of time. We've got the bonus material to come, and I'll tell you about that in a moment. But before we finish, I have to ask you as a witness on The Meaningful Life, what makes your life meaningful? You know, there are the, the things I think that make most people's lives meaningful. First would be love and the relationships and the people in my life. I, I put them first. I put my connections, my emotional connections above everything else because I've learned, and this wasn't always the case, I've learned that uh, the people in our lives are what give it meaning first and, and foremost. I didn't always believe that. I thought it was career, but now I know it's really not. It's really friendship. I value my friendship very, very deeply and my love relationship very deeply. The possibility of insight makes my life meaningful. That changed my life, realizing that we could change, as we were saying earlier, that we can unfold, that there's potential that is greater than meets the eye. That makes me excited. That gets me out of bed in the morning, seeing that I don't have to keep repeating myself endlessly, uh, that, there, that, that there can, I, can, I can grow. And I can learn. The third, I would say, is my work. I truly love my work, my, my work as a writer. And in the, for the last 15 years as a teacher as well, I, I get great joy working with people and, and, and seeing a, a light bulb go off and saying, oh, you know, I don't have to do that for the rest of my life. You know, when I get a piece of writing that has insight in it and a person has an epiphany or an aha, I feel like I'm doing something worthwhile uh, and it makes me happy. Well, I love the title to one of your books because I think it's a great attitude to have to life. So I'm going to talk more about that in a moment. And the idea is when you're falling, dive. So if you want to find out more about that and hear the bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. And if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and unlock the bonus material that way, here are the details. 
You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Collick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.